Good morning. And for our online listeners, uh, welcome. A couple of announcements before we get started. First off, I'm glad to be back. We had a good time two weeks ago with the American Association of Christian Counselors in Branson. Did a program there that was very well received and made some uh, good contacts. I will, I've been invited to do some radio programs uh, nationwide with the American Association of Christian Counselors in the spring. Um, then last week I was at the um, Southern Psychiatric Association uh, in West Virginia and did a program there, also well received. And, and then some uh, update on the Heart of Health Live TV uh, program that we have partnered with uh, HeartWise Ministries to produce. It's currently available live at 6 p.m. Thursday nights, uh, call-in formats uh, on Charter Channel 5 WTNB in Cleveland, Dayton, and Athens, Channel 10 in Dalton, Calhoun, Fort Oglethorpe, and North Georgia, Channel 51.1 WDNN in Chattanooga, nationwide on MyFamilyTV.tv. It's all in the notes, uh, and HeartWiseMinistry.org. But the exciting news is we now have a contract that uh, going January will go live 6 p.m. on Thursdays on 3ABN. Yeah, that's exciting opportunity. 3ABN, uh, go live then. And Life Talk Radio uh, wants to begin broadcasting it live on their radio stream. And then the program will be rebroadcast on Legacy TV and on Smart Lifestyle as well. So the Lord has really opened up avenues for the message to go forward. And uh, so you keep praying and, and uh, the, that as the message goes forward that hearts and minds will be changed. I mean, we're going to have an opportunity. We've got the contract. It's a six-month contract for ABN that they will reevaluate the responses they're getting back from their audience and then decide whether they want to continue on with it. All right, let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We thank you for your blessings, your watch care, the way you run your universe. We ask that your spirit will be with us this morning. Our hearts will be filled with your love. We will draw together in unity as you have designed your universe to run, and that we will understand the truth of, uh, of the way your kingdom works. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we're doing lesson number four in our quarterly, Growing in Christ. And the lesson title this week is Salvation, the Only Solution. Salvation, the only solution. And in the first paragraph, the lesson describes salvation very nicely in this description. God's part in the controversy has been to stop and ultimately eliminate the deleterious effects of sin, not just on the earth, but on the creation as a whole. God's actions to rescue the creation from the destructive results of sin constitutes the doctrine of salvation. Didn't you like how that was described? I thought that was this done very well. And did you notice how they described it? I just want to point out, because sometimes I, I'm a little bit critical of the quarterly, so I, I want to be you know, praising uh, at, at times as well. But notice how they describe sin as destructive, and the destruction is a result of sin, not an infliction by God. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was well done. And God is described instead as a deliverer, a rescuer, a healer. Um, so uh, if we talk about uh, salvation, the only solution... Uh, where do we need to go in the universe to find sin? If, if God is going to rid the universe of sin, he's going to cleanse the universe of sin, he's going to free the universe of sin, well, we, we, where, where, is it, where is it located in order for, for him to do that? Okay, you've, you've clearly identified hearts and minds. That's good. Uh, how about this question? Is the decay we see in nature all around us what Paul describes as all nature groaning under the weight of sin, you know, in Romans chapter 8. Is, is this decay that we see sin? Or is it more like a fever, a symptom of sin, but not the actual disease of sin? 
Symptoms, results. Yeah, symptoms, results. So, for instance, if God were to intervene and genetically perfectly restore nature in a perfect genetic, so there's no more decay, thorns go away, this type of thing, would sin be eradicated by doing that? No. You see, you see and, and in fact, in Genesis, we get a clue of this because God barred their way to the tree of life. Now, my, under, my, my personal view, until more data comes to my mind to change my mind on it, is that the tree of life was primarily designed to provide physiological health to keep them from physiologically deteriorating. But the tree of life would not prevent somebody from uh, destroying somebody with a nuclear weapon or somebody beheading somebody. A tree of life wouldn't, wouldn't stop that. Okay, so e- people could have still died by violence against each other, but they just wouldn't have aged and decayed uh, if they had access to tree of life. And why did God deny their access? Well, just think. Look at the world around us. People living 70 years and the evil we do. How about if Hitler or people like that lived, you know, Nero and, and, and the people just never, never aged and died. Sometimes people get taken out by war like Hitler was, but sometimes they just, they're evil until they die and that's how they're taken out, right? So God did it as mercy to bar their, bar, bar their access. So back to the question then. If God is going to eliminate sin from his creation then, where, do, where does it need to be eliminated from? From where does sin need to be eliminated? Hearts and minds. Hearts and minds. Okay, then what if we're afraid of God? If we actually fear him, does that restrict, undermine, inhibit, obstruct God's ability to eliminate sin from his universe? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think about that, what method is God using to eliminate sin from the universe? Changing people. Yeah, love, absolutely. And the vehicle to achieve that if you want to use the word vehicle, it's kind of a, a stretch. But it's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is the, the way, the means whereby sin gets eradicated from the universe and ultimately from our hearts and minds. Yes, Wendell. But if Christ and God healed all human beings, do you think the world is going to change back? There's a destruction of what has happened as well. No, exactly. But do you think that the, the, that the obstacle to changing the nature is the um, genetic defects in the, in the rose bush that has thorns? Is that the obstacle? Or is the obstacle the, uh, the, um, the rebelliousness and selfishness in the hearts of men? See, I think God could change nature like this. I mean, it's just that easy. But that doesn't rid the created intelligent beings of distrust of him, selfishness, fear, and all these types of motives. So yeah, I do think that that's going to happen. Uh, and another thing, God, I think God could right now genetically fix us so that we don't have diseases, physical diseases. He could, like you saw this, in fact, when Christ was on earth. He, he genetically or physiologically fixed people. He healed many. Did that make them sinless? No. No, they were still sinners. See, so physiological healing of creation doesn't rid the universe of sin. Yeah, it's, 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 I think it's an important point. Because if that's all that was necessary, then he could do that by power and might. But it's not by power, not by might. So what are his methods if it's not power and might? How does he rid the universe of sin? Persuasion. Persuasion with love. So that's truth, love, freedom. These are his, 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 um, his methods by cleansing us. So with Christ's victory in hand, um, what Christ did 2,000 years ago, victory in hand, how does God use that victory to eliminate sin from his universe? Well, keep that in mind. 
can sin be eliminated from hearts and minds of intelligent beings? We're talking sinners now, you and me. Can sin be eliminated from your heart and mind without your cooperation? No. No. So how do you, how do you see that relationship working? The Holy Spirit presents truth to your mind in ways you can understand it, brings conviction. You're left free to decide what you're going to do with that truth. Are you going to accept the truth? You're going to open the heart. You're going to surrender to Christ. You're going to reject the truth, deny, distort, run away, close the heart, harden the heart. You see this going on in the life of Pharaoh. Truth brought to him over and over again. He gets a conviction. He softens for a moment only to then reevaluate and harden and close his heart again. And each time he did, it gets harder and harder and harder. We, the Holy Spirit brings truth in ways we can understand, leaving us free. When we open the heart, when we make a choice to, to act on the truth God has, has given us, then guess what else happens? Something really cool happens. There's an indwelling happening. The Spirit actually becomes, uh, become, comes into the heart, and you get divine power to follow through on the choice. But you don't get the power... Until you make the choice. And a lot of people pray for the power without ever making the choice. That's how I see it working. What what do you all think? Does that sound like a reasonable balance? So our personal individual choices will have no bearing on the salvation of the human species that was achieved in Christ. Follow me on that? Our personal individual choices will have no bearing on the eternal elimination of sin from the universe. That will be achieved by Christ. But our personal individual choices have a direct bearing on our eternal destiny and can influence other people's eternal destiny. Does that make sense? All right, Sunday's lesson, the scope of the sin problem, scope of the problem. What do you understand the scope of the sin problem to be? And they give a long list of Bible references. Did anybody look those up? Yeah, good. Several heads are nodding. I looked them up. Let, let's run down those and just and say, okay, this is going to give us insight, the scope of the sin problem. John 2.25. Christ did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man. What does that mean? Christ knew what was in. He didn't need the testimony. He knew what was in man. Sinful hearts. What did he know what was in man? Sin, sin. So, so this is Rebellion. this is suggesting Christ could could have confidence in man's heart, or he didn't have confidence. He didn't. So, the, so right from the bat, this first text isn't exactly telling us what's there, but it's telling us Christ doesn't trust what's there. Mm-hmm. Isn't that true? Yeah. Psalms fifty nine two, deliver me from evil doers, save me from bloodthirsty men. Okay, this is getting a little more specific now. Is it just, it's like some men are evildoers and some are bloodthirsty, but others are not? How, how about left to our own devices? Well, mankind, I think, is what Margaret was getting. Mankind is selfish and defective. And even if Satan were eliminated from the universe, if God wipes Satan and all the evil angels out right now, just puff of power, boom, gone, will sin be gone from planet Earth? No. No, no because there's evil in the hearts of men. Right. So sin would persist. Jeremiah 17, 9. The human heart is deceitful above all things, beyond cure. Who can understand it? What does it mean? Self-deceived. Self-deceived? What, what do you think it means, beyond all cure? Who can understand? You, is this describing a... We can't change ourselves. Oh, we can't fix ourselves. We can't change ourselves. We have a condition. Is it describing a condition of being? Something, something wrong with, with the way we actually operate internally. 
Too sick to be healed without outside help. I like that. Too sick for our own autoimmune systems to uh, fix what's going on with us. Okay, we, we, can't, we can't fix it ourselves. And it's deceitful. We lie to ourselves. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. Notice, where does death come from? Sin. Sin. It's, it's, I mean, it's so important to recognize that because so many people will tell you, well, death is the just penalty imposed by God for sin. That's not what it says. Death came through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Which means our condition is terminal. So we have this condition. We're defective. We're out of harmony with God's design. We're not operating, we're operating the way God built life to function anymore. And that condition itself is terminal. We're dying. James 1, 13 through 15, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And notice again, sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So notice what this is describing, that there's something wrong with us that tempts us from inside ourselves. And when we give in to the temptation and make choices to act in that direction, that, that, those choices themselves are destructive that damage us and ultimately lead to self-termination, death. And then 2 Thessalonians 2.10, And in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they did not accept the blood payment of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say that, does it? They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They refuse to love the truth. Tr- what does truth do? Gets rid of truth sets you free, but how does truth set you free? How are we not free? Because we believe the lies of Satan. Because we believe the lies of Satan. What do we read in Jeremiah 17? The human mind is deceitful above all things. That we're tempted by our own evil desires. We lie, we twist. Truth destroys lies. Sets minds free. Leads us back to trust. Do you notice what these texts are revealing about the scope of the sin problem? Where do all these texts all harmonize, focusing the sin problem where? In each of us. In each of us, in our hearts and minds. If that's the case, if if sin is actually happening inside the heart and mind of man, then what needs to be cleansed in order to cleanse the universe from sin? Our hearts and minds. Ah, so I heard somebody said the sanctuary. And so does that, so this idea of cleansing our hearts and minds is, does this idea have anything to do with Daniel 8, 14 and to 2300 days and the sanctuary will be cleansed? It's where he dwells with us. It's where he dwells with us. Do record books in heaven contain sin? No. When we read it, when we hold the Bible in our hand, and we read about David's sins with Bathsheba and killing Uriah, do we possess in our hands sin? No. If we burn the Bible, if we use eraser to erase the recorded history of David's sin, have we destroyed sin? No. no. If Christ were to erase records in heaven, would he be destroying sin? No. no. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever heard ideas like that? Hey, Christ is in heaven, erasing record books. Not getting rid of sin. Sin isn't in record books. Sin is in hearts and minds of living beings. Sin happens in the intelligent being who's in rebellion against God. God wants to cleanse, not simply cleanse the hearts and minds of people, not the recorded history of the universe. You see the difference. Monday's lesson points out that sin needed immediate attention. 
correctly points it out. As soon as mankind sinned, immediate attention from God was needed. Yes, Wendell. One thing, though, is we're, we're missing with this discussion so far is this is just not this world. All the concentration so far in this lesson has been about correcting the sin, taking care of it. If every person is in this entire world were forgiven, healed, and restored, it would still not take care of the sin problem. So Christ's death and life had more to do than just saving me, or you, or every person on this earth. Well said, absolutely. And hopefully, in, in, in this lesson and the one we're going to do after, we're going to actually bring those elements to bear too. And we talk about Colossians, for instance, 1, uh, 18 through 20, that all things in heaven and in earth were reconciled to Christ at the cross through the shedding of his blood. Uh, so there, there's a text that support what you're describing there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the lesson point out there, after mankind sinned, there was an immediate need, uh, immediate need for attention. If uh, the idea of, of penal substitution is correct, and the problem is that the governing authority must inflict a just punishment, then what would be the immediate need in Eden? If that idea is correct, and there's an immediate need, what, where's the immediate need if, if the authority must inflict punishment? God needs to be blocked. God needs to be blocked. That's the need. But notice what Genesis actually says. The immediate need provided needed, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. What does this action by God tell us about what was actually needed immediately? What was needed immediately? God did something. What did he do? He intervened where? In our hearts. To do what? To give us an awareness and a dislike of of sin um, to recognize that it's wrong. So God brought a conviction to mankind to put a desire for good, to cause a uneasiness with evil in our hearts. Why? Well, because Romans 7, Romans 8, 7 and 8, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. What is the Bible teaching here? Without the intervention of God in the heart of humanity, with the Holy Spirit bringing conviction, drawing, wooing, showing a better way, there would be a perfect confederacy between evil men and evil angels. There would have been no part, there would have been no human being that would have said, hey, let, let's, let's reach out to God. Human beings would have joined Satan in his rebellion without this intervention. But what does this intervention by definition mean? If he's intervening there, where's the problem? Us. Yes. What does it mean about the idea that, that there needs to be some intervention with God? No, God was the one doing the intervening with the problem of sin. Pam? Yes. I think he gave us a conscience so that we can distinguish right from wrong. That's exactly right. But, the, but after the fall, without the Holy Spirit intervening to in, convict our conscience, enlighten our mind, without the Holy Spirit's intervention, left on our own, disconnected from God, the conscience would have been completely warped such that we would be united with the devil. Yeah. Um, is the heart of humanity the only place after man's fall that God has intervened or interceded? Just in the heart or other places has he been intervening, interceding? How about with the principalities and powers of darkness? Has he been sending his agencies to do battle? Daniel chapter 10. Do you see the story of, the, of Gabriel coming after Daniel's prayer and say, I've been doing battle with the prince of Persia. Remember? Or 
uh, the angels putting in a, uh, uh, the, uh, with Elisha and the, and the chariots of fire protecting from the army around, remember? The entire Old Testament is him interceding. There we go. Yeah, he's intervening with nature. And, and with nature. How about, and this is what I, I think is the most amazing of all and the most poignant, that he intercedes with the natural course that sin would take by becoming sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He came, see, without, without Christ incarnate, what's the natural course that sin takes with a being? Death. Christ came and altered that trajectory. He interceded in the natural course. He became sin, and because of his intervention in the natural course in humanity, there's a different outcome now. He changed the outcome. It's very, very, it just gives me chills to think about that. Tuesday's lesson, middle of the lesson, on Tuesday's lesson it says, Christ's sacrificial death is presented in Scripture as an atonement for sin. This means, uh, the means by which the sin problem in all its manifestations is ultimately dealt with. How does the death of Christ provide for for humanity's need of salvation? Thoughts about that? This This is the big question, isn't it? How you answer this question reflects largely on how you understand God and his universe to run. So what thoughts? How would you answer? Somebody, uh, somebody that you're on the airplane with knows you're a Christian and say, you know, I, I understand Christians believe Christ had to die. Why? Why? Well, if atonement means at one minute, that would be reconciling us back to him. To reconcile. And how does his death do that? Because it shows us won't use his power to save himself, um, that he gives his life freely to save us. Do, do you like how the lesson, exactly, I agree with that. Do you like how the lesson, um, if you look down right below the question, has paired together justification with reconciliation and sanctification with regeneration? I, I thought that was well done. Okay, it's, it's connecting them. It's kind of leading your mind to think, hey, there's something. It's not just some legal thing going on here. If justification means reconciliation, there's something relational going on there. And if sanctification is regeneration, there's something healing and restorative going on there. I like how they pair those together. But Thursday's lesson, I think it's a little more confusing. And if you look at Thursday's lesson, when you read the first paragraph, it says, the experience of justification places within the life of the believer spiritual realities that initiate change in the person's life. In justification, the sinner is forgiven, acquitted of the charges of sin, and reckoned righteous, and given the gift of new life. And in the third paragraph, it says, um, Christ's perfect life is credited to you as if it were yours. Now, this is a proffered solution. But what is the problem this solution is designed to fix? symptoms. If you think it through, if if this is the solution, it's designed and targeted to a particular type of problem. Legal problem. Oh, a legal problem. A God problem. A God problem. It's to hide us from God. So when God looks at our records, he doesn't see our record. He sees the perfect record of his son. You heard this? You notice it kind of just said that, doesn't it? It says that his record is, um, is credited to you as if it were yours. So when God looks at me, he finds that I was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago because my record's gone and it's replaced with somebody else's record. 
Yes. This also goes back to the myths that you previously discussed of forgiveness. What does forgiveness do? Forgiveness does not change the relationship. Forgiveness is on the part of the forgiver, but it does not affect the person who's been forgiven unless they truly respond and develop a true relationship with that individual in one moment. Did everybody hear that? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't, isn't forgiveness about that when God forgives me, my response to that is that it melts the rebellion in my heart to see him in that kind of gracious way. And when the rebellion melts in my heart, I become teachable. I become more open and receptive to see and understand things that if I hadn't experienced forgiveness, I might not see as clearly or as be as willing to be reached. I think it's well said as well. And uh, we're going to get in the paragraph at the second to the last paragraph in our lesson for Thursday, we're going to get to forgiveness question just a minute because they, they bring it up. So this is very important for us to explore um, if we can push the pause on that just a second. Um, but I want to go through that with you because you both said great things. But this proffered solution that they're offering here is, some, is, is to address something that is in you know, theological parlance called retributive justice, or, which is the basis of penal substitution theology. The idea that justice requires the infliction of punishment for breaking law and that the ruler must inflict such, such punishment lest unpunished rebellion persist. And this concept originated, when, when this concept originated, it originated after Constantine, uh, after Constantine converted, and Constantine brought the constructs of Roman rule to, into the church. And at the time this came up was in, in the Middle Ages, and think what was society was doing, what society thought was justice at the time. If you did something, some petty crime, there was public beatings. This was just. Children were beaten at schools. If someone was honestly unable to pay a debt because of a sickness, they broke a leg, they were imprisoned. They would burn people at the stake who believed differently than them. This was all considered just. At the, con- at the time in history, in society, when this construct of retributive justice uh, was, was put upon uh, Christianity. I want to recommend a new book to you, and, and I really do want to recommend strongly this new book. I've been quite impressed with it. It came out August 2012, just a couple months ago. It's called Healing the Gospel, A Radical Vision of Grace, Justice, and the Cross by Derek Flood. And, and, and it's in the notes, but I recommend it to you. I'm going to share some sections with you. He opens the book by describing his experience as a teenager of accepting Christ and the joy and the love and the, and the, and the freedom from fear and insecurity he had, that, that first love of Christ that we've often experienced at a conversion. He describes that, and he said it was so overwhelming for him that he wanted to share this wonderful experience of Jesus with everyone. So he be, uh, as a non-church tender who found Christ, he started to go to church. But he said something was different there, and this is a quote from him. I quickly discovered that the message I was taught to share with others was very different from what I had actually experienced. It seemed more like bad news and led to all sorts of awkward conversations like this. Jesus died for you. Why did Jesus have to die? Because of our sin. What if we haven't sinned? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one can keep the law. But if no one can keep it, how can we be blamed for that? Because the wages of sin is death. So justice requires that you be sent to sent to be tormented in hell for all eternity. That's awful. Yes, but there's good news. God has provided a way out by sacrificing his son. God kills his own son? Yes, but that's how he loves you. That's how much he loves you. Why would that make things better? 
because it satisfies God's need for punishment. Sin must be paid for with blood because without blood, there is no forgiveness. I feel ill. (laughs) Can't you see this is God's mercy and love? Don't you want to open your heart and let him into your life? I think I have to go now. (laughs) And then he goes on to say, I was taught to tell people that they deserve to be punished by God forever. Taught that we should see ourselves as worthless, totally depraved, capable of nothing good apart from God. I was taught that the reason Jesus died was because God demanded that someone had to suffer the penalty of sin. Someone had to be punished to appease God's wrath. No wonder I got a cold shoulder when I tried to share this good news with people. Beyond all of this lies an image of God as a judge who is primarily concerned with satisfaction of punitive justice. This is what he describes in his first chapter about his personal experience. Any thoughts about that before I share a little bit more? I think you'll find very encouraging. Have any of you ever heard anything like that in your Christian journey? Sounds similar. I was taught this in school. Russell, you were taught the same thing? You were taught the same thing? How about you? Same thing, yeah. I mean, this is what we're taught in the system. If such ideas were true, if, if what I just read described were actually true, does that engender trust? Do you want to open your heart to Christ more if that were true? Makes you afraid of it. So, so who wants to undermine our ability to trust God? The devil. Yeah, so where do you think these ideas are coming from? So further on in his book, we think that the gospel is rooted in the idea that Jesus had to die to fulfill the demands of punitive justice. This is an understanding of the atonement known as penal substitution. Penal meaning punish and substitution meaning that Jesus is punished instead of us. What I propose is that the above is not at all what the Bible teaches, and instead is a result of people projecting their worldly understanding of punitive justice onto the Bible text. The New Testament, in contrast, is actually a critique of punitive justice. It presents it as a problem to be solved, not as a means to the solution. The problem of wrath, that is punitive justice, is overcome through the cross, which is an act of restoration, restoring humanity to a right relationship with God. In other words, restorative justice is how God in Christ acts to heal the problem of punitive justice. Love is not in conflict with justice. Love is how justice comes about because the New Testament understanding of justice is ultimately not about punishment, but about making things right again. Amen. I mean, isn't that right? Justification. What does it mean? It's the same Greek word as righteousness. Justify, righteousness. If you ever had to justify the margins on your word processor, what does that do? You're forgiving them, you're pardoning them, you're paying a penalty for them. No, you're putting them right. You're putting them in order. And so biblical justice is all about taking that which is out of harmony with God and putting it in harmony with God. And what we've already talked about in here today is where does sin happen? In hearts and minds. So what needs to be put right with God? Hearts and minds. minds. So Christ is working to put hearts and minds right with God. And you notice how this stands in stark contrast to human government's construct of justice. When when after 911, George Bush said, remember what he said? Something along the lines, whether we bring uh, perpetrators to justice or justice to the perpetrators, justice will be served. Something along those lines. Remember this? What did he mean? We will restore them to a loving, they'll love us and they'll love the United States. We'll all get along. We'll forgive them. We'll, we'll change their hearts. So they won't be our enemy. We'll turn enemies into friends is what it says in, in Corinthians. As Christ is working. God is working through Christ to turn his enemies into friends. That's, that's biblical justice. 
Is that what George Bush meant? Let's go over there and make these people our friends. No. Let's crush them. Yeah. Let's crush them. And how many see biblical justice, human justice projected onto the divine government and see that one day God is going to come with that rod of iron and he's going to crush his enemies? Billions. What, what did, why did the Jews request, reject Christ 2,000 years ago? What Messiah were they looking for? They were looking for someone who was going to come and crush the Romans. They couldn't conceive of somebody who loved the Romans and wanted to turn them into friends. That was beyond their imagination. Russell. I find the irony interesting that we, you know, we'll get a quote like that from our president and then get entangled in this mess and then talk about winning hearts and minds. And we're not winning their hearts and minds. And we can't figure out why they're, they're trying to blow us up. You can't win the heart and mind of somebody you're trying to kill. That's right. No. And, and how much of historic Christianity has been this construct of a two-faced God? On the one hand, Christ has come to die for you. But on the other hand, if you don't accept what he's done, God is going to kill you. How much of Christianity is presented that way? I was talking to Margaret before class. Why Christ hasn't come? Supposedly, from our, from, from the, the people and a prophet from history, Christ could have come by now. But he hasn't because the church hasn't done its mission. And what's the mission of the church? When this, when the gospel of the kingdom shall be taken to the whole world as a witness to all nations, then the end will come. The gospel of the what kingdom? The kingdoms of earth? Kingdom of earth. Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight. So what is he saying here? If you put those two together, which kingdom, what, which gospel has gone to the world? We represent God's government like the earthly governments. This is not the gospel. We haven't taken the gospel of the kingdom to the world. So the end can't come because people still think God runs his universe like men run their governments. And it's a big lie. Well, a lot of that concept came out of the church in whatever era of history to control people. Absolutely. Exactly right. And they use those same methods if we look at the merging of church-state power. Okay, I don't know if you all watched the vice presidential debate this uh, past Thursday night. I watched it, and, uh, and I watched part of it. I didn't watch all of it. And there was one section, though, um, and uh, the specific issue is not what's important to me. Right. That they talked about, but but the the responses and you get an idea of, of of their constructs of how government should work on their answer to this question. And they asked the question of what they thought about abortion, and and Biden said, "My Catholicism informs my personal decisions in the way I live as an individual, but I don't believe that I should use government to enforce my religious beliefs on other people. I should leave them free to be persuaded in their own mind." That's what Biden said. Ryan said, I think questions like this should be answered by, legisla- by legislations, by elected officials voting in legislature to determine laws to answer these types of questions. <clears throat> now, does that strike anybody as something coming out of a book called The Great Controversy that says when we elect the officials to pass laws to enforce? I mean, you hear this? It shows a completely different mentality. And the, the specific issue is not important to me. It's the methodology. Are we willing to reach out, take hold of government, to pass laws to enforce people to abide by our religious views, whatever that view and whatever that issue is? That's the future. That's the future. Uh, Flood in chapter two of his book states the following. 
Beginning in chapter 2 of Romans, Paul has been criticizing the assumption of his religious audience who are calling out for justice in the form of retribution and punishment. Remember, he's writing to these people who want the wicked to be punished. This is that same Jewish mindset who wanted the Romans to be punished. Now he, pro- he proposes that God's justice really comes through God's action in Christ to restore all humanity in love. Restorative justice instead of punitive justice. Paul then goes on to explain how God's restorative justice is in Christ comes about. God acts in Christ to make us good. A key concept is here is justification, which normally refers to legal acquittal, i.e. declaring a person innocent in court, and has been has often been mistranslated as such in Romans. But if that were the case, then Paul's entire argument would fall apart. He is arguing that it was just for God not to punish sinners, and as his audience wished. If his only reason was that God had declared these sinners innocent, this would have been seen by his audience as a profound injustice, the acquittal of the guilty. God brings about true justice, Paul tells us, by making sinners into saints. So he does, in other words, he doesn't have to punish anymore. So how does he avoid the punishment? Not by just declaring them innocent with somebody else's record in their place. He avoids the punishment by actually healing them and fixing them so they're no longer out of harmony with God and his design. This act of redemptive transformation is nothing short of a miracle and happens through relationship, through being loved by God and God's goodness making us good. Paul goes on uh, to explain in Romans 7 and 8 that as God's spirit indwells us, as we experience Christ's indwelling love, we are relationally transformed into his likeness. This way of, of the spirit brings life, Paul says, but the way of law, the way of retributive justice brings death. Isn't that powerful? I'm telling you, I'm recommending this book to you guys. It's really well done. It's really well done. He is, is, is doing such a great job, and, he, and uh, I'll have some more quotes in this in the next lesson. But he really documents well that the church fathers, the first couple of centuries after Christ died, taught a healing model. They did not teach a legal model. It's really good stuff. Fourth paragraph, now we're going to do the forgiveness question. Now listen carefully to what's being suggested here. The experience of forgiveness ends the sinner's vulnerability to God's wrath and clears away any barriers to reconciliation and fellowship between God and humans. Wait, 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 wait. Maybe I need to read that again. I've surely misunderstood that. Let's read that again. The experience of forgiveness ends the sinner's vulnerability to God's wrath and clears away any barriers to reconciliation. Well, maybe we could get some clarification out of the Seventh-day Adventist Fundamental Beliefs, page 111. So I read, Christ's self-sacrifice is pleasing to God because this sacrificial offering took away the barrier between God and sinful man in that Christ fully bore God's wrath on man's sin. Through Christ, this is still reading out of the, the book, God's wrath is not turned into love, but is turned away from man and born by himself. And what are these two suggesting is the, I want to come to God. I want to be reconciled to him. I, I want to be united with him. But there's something in my way that blocks me. What are they suggesting that is? God, God is in the way. He's just too mad. He's too angry. He's too wrathful. And if you just get a little grip on his temper a little bit there, or his hostility, or whatever you want to call it, well, then we could be reconciled. But we have to have Jesus come and, and placate him, appease him, propitiate him, if you like that word better. And then, and then we can be reconciled. 
Do such constructs engender trust? Do you see the root problem? Those who think this, and why do people think this way? Because they've accepted a lie about God's law. And Ellen White says in Great Controversy, for those of you who value what she wrote, that the final test will come over God's law. Many have misconstrued what that meant. I think, I think this is what it means. You see, God's law is either the law of love emanating from his character upon which when he created, he built his universe to operate in harmony with him. Or we can conceptualize God's law like a Roman emperor imposed upon creatures, arbitrarily imposed, rules to be kept. Now, if God's law is the law upon which life is built, deviations from that, like the law of respiration, deviations from that, tie a plastic bag over your head, result in death. The wages of sin is death. Sin is lawlessness, stepping outside the law. If we conceptualize it like Rome, then the wages of breaking that law, well, it's not death. It's imposed punishment by the ruling authority. And if you conceptualize law this way, and God does not impose a punishment, there's no justice. So God has to impose punishment. And the root problem in the people who promote these ideas is they have replaced the truth about God's law with human law constructs. And therefore, they construct God as a, as a, as a governing authority that must impose punishment in order to be just. How can we free our church and our church leaders from these distortions about God's law? It's an obstacle to taking the gospel forward. I personally would really like to see Jesus come in my lifetime. Amen. Maybe I'm deluding myself, but I really believe that if we did our job and took the gospel to the world, final events would just be like dominoes falling and go. And the Lord is graciously holding in check, holding in check, holding in check for the sleeping virgins to wake up and do their job. How can we help? Well, keep praying for what's going on. I told you earlier, the Lord is opening avenues. It's going, this book by Derek Flood, there are others like it coming from outside this organization mm-hmm. with this message going forward. It's going forward. Christ said if, if the children didn't shout, the rocks would shout. Mm-hmm. The message is going forward. When the Jewish nation, who was, who was God's church, called to take the message, didn't do it, it went outside the Jewish church and he took the message. Mm-hmm. The message will go. And, and, and our class, I'm going to tell you, you, you guys are, are part of that. I told you about the, the Lord opening up the avenue for 3ABN. Our new TV program is going to start broadcasting there on Thursday night starting in January. Pray that, the, that the, we will reach, reach people around the world. That will, because the church is in a place, it's positioned worldwide, that if we just woke up, we could take this message in every culture of the world. Last paragraph says, Repentance is the prerequisite for entering into an experience of forgiveness and justification, and it comes accompanied by confession and baptism. Hmm, think that through. Repentance, hmm. So let's, let's ask, what does it mean? Does it mean, see, repentance is the prerequisite for entering into the experience of forgiveness. I actually kind of like the way this was phrased. Because it saw, talked about entering into the experience. But I just want to clarify, because we can sometimes misread. Is, is it saying God is willing to forgive, but won't forgive until sinners repent? Is that what it's saying? No. God's willing to forgive, he's forgiving, but he won't forgive. Or God's willing to forgive, but he can't forgive until sinners repent. Is that what it's saying? Isn't this a lot like the prodigal son? When he came to himself, he realized some things. And that enabled him to go to the father who we now know was looking for him to come back. So the father's attitude was always open. 
Always hoping. The barrier was the closed heart of the son. Right. I like that very much. I think you've nailed it. But repentance is a gift from God. Repentance is a gift for God. We're gonna, yeah, let's step through that. I just want to go through the different possible ways we can interpret this sentence. One, God is willing to forgive but won't or can't until, forgi- until we repent. Uh, God remains actually unforgiving and resentful, a grudge holder, until sinners repent, waiting to be, you know, Told, told we're sorry, then he'll forget. That's one possible why. Or God forgives everyone, as you suggested, uh, but not everyone opens their heart to experience, as a lesson is suggesting, experience the forgiveness which would lead them to repentance. He said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. <laughs> what does that mean? The big word there is if. Does God remain unforgiving if we don't confess? No. What's he got to forgive? We don't confess it. So, um, a loving God who is willing to forgive our sins if we confess. Them. So on the cross, when Christ said, "Father, forgive them," what they know not what they do. Did Christ forgive them? Mm-hmm. But they knew it. Did do. Christ forgive them? Yes. 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 Did they ask or confess their sin? No. We don't know that. Well. At the cross, we we certainly do. Oh. <laughs> and did Christ have authority on earth to forgive sin? Yes. You remember the paralytic that was brought to him? Yes. And, and he said, such that you might know that the Son of Man hath authority on earth to forgive sin, take up your bed. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here we have a good example of people who were forgiven by Christ who never asked. They didn't confess to him. They were still crucifying, mocking him, torturing him. They went to, they went to Pilate afterwards and tried to and had the guard put there to make sure Christ couldn't come out of the tomb. They certainly weren't acting as if they were now his friends. So does that make that text obsolete? No, it, 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 we have to put all of them together. We have to harmonize them. We can't understand, what, we can't form a theology from one text only. We have to put them all together. And so this is where the balance, I think, is. On God's side of the equation, we see God's heart and attitude revealed in Christ. He forgives freely. But what you're saying is they didn't open their heart to confess their sin. Therefore, they could not experience the forgiveness that was freely offered. It was freely offered, freely given. God was not grudge-holding. He wasn't resentful. He was loving. He came while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Okay, None of us repented first. He came first. And it was, as it says in Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. So it was God's goodness and kindness that leads us to repentance. But if we don't open the heart, then we aren't actually forgiven, even though God has forgiven from his heart. God is forgiving, but we haven't experienced the forgiveness if we remain close-hearted. You see the balance now? Yeah. I just wanted to point out, the text itself doesn't stop with forgiving. It continues with cleansing us from righteousness, and that's the part that can't happen if we don't confess. And, and actually, there's two ways to conceptualize the idea of forgiveness. The cultural way that I just went through, which is something that's extended from a person that's been offended, we have forgiveness that we extend. That's how we usually understand forgiveness. But there is a biblical construct of forgiveness, that actual biblical forgiveness is the entire process that includes reconciliation or restoration. So if a person doesn't open the heart and repent, they aren't restored, therefore they're not forgiven. Not that God is unforgiving, he's forgiving, but in the biblical definition, it's the entire process of reconstruction, recreation. And that's where it gets confusing for a lot of people because they will sometimes read, like in that one, if we confess, then he is faithful to forgive, faithful to heal and restore. But he can't heal and restore if we don't confess. But But then we put our modern day 
definition of forgiveness on that is that, well, God doesn't actually forgive us. He holds it against us still. But that's not true. Yes, Russell. This is also a great text uh, to um, support what God's uh, definition of justice is. God is faithful and just. Yes. Forgive us from sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Nice. Great example. This is a great explanation of God's justice. Yeah, isn't it beautiful? When we see it this way. It's phenomenal. Uh, and the lesson, actually, interestingly enough, after saying this on this page, if you back up to Wednesdays, it says, um, "Let's see. Uh, we have also seen that contemplating the love of Christ motivates a person to repentance." Mm-hmm. See, I mean, it says it very nicely there. What brings us to repentance? Contemplating the love of Christ, the kindness of God, leads us repentance. Yeah. You almost feel like two different people wrote these lessons sometimes, don't you? <laughs> yes. But in that discussion on, on the discussion on Wednesday, um, it, it's describing repentance as a feeling. It has nothing to do with your mind. It has all to do with your emotion. What do you all think about that? Is repentance a feeling? Or is it a it can include feelings. Yes, but is it more than feelings? You said you said a choice to turn away. I would say it's even more than that, and this is why it's a gift of God. Repentance is an actual change of heart attitude toward the sin. So you don't just turn away. See, David. This is this what's cool. I liked. Do you ever ever have anybody that's in the in the model where law is imposed versus the the model of of love, God's design protocol of law? T- take him to David. David was confronted about his sin with Bathsheba by the prophet Nathan. Did he repent? Yes. Did he turn away from Bathsheba? No. Wait a minute. How does that work? Wasn't he supposed to turn away from her? How can he go? How how can he have a, another wife on top of all as well and not still be in sin? How can he do that? You see, if you have an imposed law construct and the rules say you shall not commit adultery, he can't have her and still not be in sin. But if you have a law of love construct, then you realize that David took from her her station, her good name, her ability to be provided for. In that culture, the woman had nothing. It was all based on the man. He took her husband. She had no standing, no position. He disgraced her. She would end up probably being a prostitute. And when he was really repentant, he had to restore what he took from her to the best of his ability. So he married her to give her station and dignity and place where she could hold her head in society again. But you can't get that if you have an imposed law construct. It does, it, it, it does not compute. It does not compute. You have to keep the rules. And how many people in churches have been injured because of this, I got to do the rules thing? Rather than I got to do the love thing. bottom pink section on Wednesday's lesson. It says, what are some tangible and practical ways in which you may flood your heart and mind with the goodness of God, especially as you think of what he has done for you and what he has spared you from? I think this is an important question. What are practical ways? Guys, what are practical ways? You can flood your heart and mind with the goodness of God. We're told to spend a thoughtful hour in contemplation of the life of Christ. Okay, a thoughtful hour every day con- contemplating the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. How many do that? 
Good for you. I see a couple of hands. I got to be honest. I don't always get an hour every day. I don't. This is one of the devil's tricks. We we're told about it in a parable that the busyness of life comes up. I'm busy. Anybody else busy? Yes. I told Christy uh, last night, this morning, I'm too busy. Too busy. People have been telling me for years, don't burn out. Slow down. This is one of the tricks. I'm trying to slow down. Other other thoughts? Spending a thoughtful hour a day. Anything else? That's it. Yes. Writing down the answers to prayer that he has given you. Go back and review them. I think that is so helpful. I think, I think that that's a phenomenal idea, and I think we do too little of it. And I've, I've tried to start doing that for myself, and what happens is I get too busy to remember to do it. <laughs> because because this, is, this is history. Look at the Jewish nation. Their songs were all about God's deliverances. They reminded themselves. Their rituals and stuff were to remind them of what God had done them in the past. Over and over and over again, they would remind themselves of God's involvement and deliverance in their lives. I think it's all too easy with the way our brains work to forget how God has delivered us and what he's provided for us. And we remember that and encourage us. Oh, he did that, 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 that. Oh, I don't have to worry about this. Yeah, he's taking care of bigger stuff than that in the past. I think that's great. We should not only remind ourselves, but we should remind others. We should share with others what God has, uh, has done as far as transforming us from the, the mindset that we had in the academy and college to what we have now. I think that is huge. And, and of course... <sighs> <laughs> the danger in when we have the reminding each other is what do you do when someone stands up and says, I want to thank the Lord for bringing me safely to camp meeting. We had to drive 300 miles and somebody else got killed on the way to camp meeting. And they prayed for, for, for safe travels too. Did the Lord not care about them? Thank you for healing me, uh, but somebody else didn't get healed. What do we do about that? Trusting God. Yeah, we trust in God, but do you see how sometimes it could be confusing? Some, I think some prayers are pretty evident and obvious in black and white that they've been answered. Sometimes things happen, either good or bad. For, let's put it this way. Does God sometimes discipline those he loves? Yes. Yes, he does. The Bible is very clear. God sometimes disciplines those he loves. Does that mean every traumatic thing that happens in this world is from God? No. no, trauma things can come. We've got examples in Scripture where, where the devil acts to hurt. We've got examples where evil people act to hurt. We've got examples where just random chaos of an of a earth no longer operating. Just, it just happens. Well, okay? Now, to, um, reason with the mind anyway. That's right. So, so that's on the negative side. What about on the blessing side? Can sometimes somebody get well because they had a good doctor and God didn't miraculously intervene to heal them? Or is every healing a God supernatural inter- intervening to miraculously heal? God's a train on good and evil. Ah, so ultimately, the knowledge to heal, the interventions, the ability, the rain, the sunshine, that ultimately comes from God. But that doesn't mean it's a specific intervention in that person's life with divine power from heaven. Job is an example, right? Yeah, Job. The evil didn't come from God. Yeah. And Satan said, God, you don't have a clue. Yeah. And that's the story there, and that's what Satan's trying to tell us all now. Mm-hmm. God, you don't have a clue. And, and, and I think one of the challenges is to trust him with the outcomes right. when we can't necessarily see how it's going to turn out. What gives us the ability to do that? And I think this is the real key. John 17.3. John 17.3. This is life eternal. They might know you. Know you. See, who are the people you trust the most? 
and maybe the people you distrust the most too. They're the ones you know the best. Okay? I mean, the, the, the distru- untrustworthy people you know the best, you trust the least. The trustworthy people you know the best, you trust the most. Isn't that true? Mm-hmm. In other words, so your knowledge, your experience with somebody will determine whether you trust them or not based on their trustworthiness. Well, God is supremely and perfectly trustworthy. And so our ability to trust him with outcomes is based on how well do we know him? Not know about him. This is another trick, I think, of religion, is that we spend our life being indoctrinated, in, indoctrinated into doctrines and theories. And, uh, you know, being able to, to name all ten horns and, and when they were uprooted and, and these types of things. And that somehow translates into knowing God. It doesn't. It does not. See, we can know about Barack Obama or George Bush. But does that mean we know them? No. No, and sometimes people know about God. And they, and they, and they mistake that for actually knowing God. Knowing about God doesn't bring peace. Knowing God brings peace. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, the fullness of God in bodily form, that we might know you. To do for us which we could not do for ourselves, reveal the truth about you and overcome to destroy sin in sinful flesh and restore the righteousness of God in man. We ask that your spirit will come to enlighten our mind, to take all that Christ has achieved in our behalf and reproduce it in us. So it's no longer we, the sinful people living, but it's Christ living in us. Give us the ability of effectiveness, the skill to take this true gospel of your kingdom of love to the world, that the world might be lightened for your return. Open the way, the avenues of communication. Move out of the way, the obstacles, those who would oppose, that, the, that this message can finally do its work on earth and we can see you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.